We're looking this morning at the subject, God seeks his worshipers from John chapter 4. And we're dealing with the lost Samaritan woman. If you look at your bulletin now, that's the first point. In returning to his home country of Galilee, our text states, verse 4 and following, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria named Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour, as Jews contemplate time, would be 12 noon. High noon, he's at this well. Now why does John, who's writing this gospel account, why does he tell us that Jesus had to go through Samaria? There were, credibly, other ways for people traveling from Judea to Galilee. And for the Jews, they made it a point not to travel through Samaria to get from point A to point B. So Judah would be down here, Galilee's up here, Samaria is right in the middle. You could go straight due north, they didn't do that. If you look on your Bible map, the most direct route from Judah down here to Galilee up here is right through Samaria. But the Jews were not looking for ease of travel but they were looking for non-interaction with Samaritans in their travel. Jump down momentarily to verse 9 of our text. Here Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman after her arrival at the well, and her response was, and it's very revealing, You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Parenthesis. For Jews, writes John, do not associate with Samaritans. This last statement is in parenthesis in the NIV. It is John's explanation of the woman's statement for readers who might be Greek and therefore not comprehend the woman's meaning. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And her question is, how can you ask me for a drink. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? So what we are witnessing here is this woman's keen perception of the hatred and the prejudice the Jews of her day had toward Samaritans. This animosity was so acute that instead of traveling due north from Judea to Galilee, through Samaria, the Jews would cross the Jordan down here, somewhat east of Jerusalem, travel through the old tribal territories of Gad and Manasseh, and then once they got far enough north, that is above Samaria, they would recross the Jordan westbound and enter Galilee. So it's kind of like a horseshoe laid on its side. They would go, mm, mm, mm. Samaria right here, they would miss Samaria and they would go around it that way. This horseshoe diversion of travel added many hours 
and a lot of geography to what would otherwise have been a more expedient route straight north through Samaria. Brethren, racial or ethnic prejudice is nothing new. We have it in our world between whites and blacks, between Hispanics and Latinos and what they call gringos, us white guys, and most definitely between Arabs and Jews, which if you've been one following the news is hot, hot item right now in the news, has always been, but it's really escalated in these last couple of weeks. Okay, so there's, here's the question. Why did the Jews hate the Samaritans? Why did they go this long route? Why didn't they want to even see these people, talk to these people, rub shoulders with them, have commerce with them, or whatever? Well, there are two main reasons. Number one, the Samaritans were former Jews who intermarried with Assyrian, Assyrian Gentiles. Nehemiah had to deal with them in the day, in his day. He had to deal with this intermarriage. And he wasn't too kind and considerate as he dealt with it. Let me read his words. He's talking to the, the Jewish people that intermarried. I rebuked them and I called down curses on them. I beat some of the men. I pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. And I said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Nehemiah 13, verses 25 through 27. He is saying... You should marry in the faith. Young people, I say the same thing. Marry in the faith. Don't be marrying outside of your faith. Well, they were doing that, and they were practicing Solomon's sin, which brought him down. Now, that text in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 25 through 27. Okay, from where did these foreign women come? Let me read it for you. It's in 2 Kings 17, verse 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthath, Arva, I don't know any of these places, uh, Hamath, Sepharvim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its town. 2 Kings 17, verse 24. When the Assyrians came from the north and captured Israel's northern tribes, about 722 B.C., the towns of Samaria were in need of repopulating. So the king of Assyria repopulated those Jewish settlements 
with foreign nationalities. And we read some of those. You see, not every last Jew was deported. There was a population left there. And so the Samaritans are the people group which were half Jews and half Gentiles. The Orthodox Jews who married in the faith, therefore, hated these half-breeds and considered them to be traitors. You have violated God's law. You married Gentiles. You brought in foreign women. And they were hated for that. Now that was reason number one, that they hated the Samaritans. Here's reason number two. The more serious breach of relationships came when the Samaritans set up their own religion contrary to the worship of Jehovah in Jerusalem. This was intentionally done after the division of the kingdom when Jeroboam, a ruler opposed to Solomon's son, set up golden calves, one in Bethel, one in Dan, for the specific purpose of keeping those northern ten tribes from traveling to Jerusalem to worship because his fear was, oh, if we let them go down there to worship in Jerusalem, they'll rejoin Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes, and I will lose my kingdom. So he didn't want that to happen. So he set up these worship centers, one in Dan and one in a town called Bethel. These were what? They were golden calves. Boy, the golden calf problem of the Exodus at Mount Sinai continued to plague Israel and now it pops up again after the division of the kingdom. And so it was to keep them from traveling to Jerusalem. Now the woman at the well in our text alludes to Mount Gerizim, verse 20, where one of the worship centers had been built. By the time of the deportation and later the repatriatism, the exiles were allowed to return from Assyria and come back home. By that time, we are told, and I'm reading scripture again, they worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. So, you know, it's an amalgamation. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and ordinances, the laws and the commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. 2 Kings 17, verse 33 and 4. So here's the problem. They intermarry with the Assyrians, the foreigners, and they establish a religion and then they worship both. <laughs> they worship the Lord, but they also worship their idols. So the Samaritans were hated for intermarrying with Gentiles, but they were hated more for their idolatry. And all of this plays an important role in the background of Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman at the well. Well, we might ask, well, if all of this is so, why then did Jesus talk to this woman? Wouldn't it be more appropriate for him to comply with the protocol of non-association with the Jews and 
construct himself in such a way as to avoid any contact with, can I say it, idolaters. Maybe the Jews are right. Maybe they should do this horseshoe thing. Maybe they shouldn't go through Samaria. Maybe they shouldn't associate with these people. So why then is Jesus doing that? Well, point two of your outline. Jesus' pattern was always to seek lost sinners. He made the deliberate itinerary of traveling through Samaria from Judah, not around the horseshoe to avoid it. Look at the Bible maps again and you will discover that Sychar is at the foot of Mount Gerizim, about halfway between Judah and Galilee, smack in the middle of Samaria. The Samaritans are not seeking out Jesus, but he is seeking out them. This is not where the religious elite would be found ministering, but it is where Jesus is to be found ministering. And it is by design, not accident, he is always seeking his people. Let me read some scriptures on that. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, that's another name for Matthew. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors, you remember Matthew was a tax collector, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark 2, verse 15 through 17. His mission is to call out sinners. When Zacchaeus, another tax collector like Matthew, was singled out of the crowd, to host Jesus for dinner, we are told, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now the if clause again, he's not, it's not suggesting that he didn't do it. These tax collectors did do it. That's what their sin was. They overtaxed the people and the overtax. They put in their own pocket. Rome got what it required. They took the rest. But he says, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19, verse 8 through 10. Or again, Jesus told this account. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that there will be more rejoicing in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Luke 15, verse 4 through 7. I'll say it again. The lost, the spiritually sick, those who know and acknowledge that they are sinners, this was the stomping ground of Jesus' ministry, and it ought to be our stomping ground of witness as well. You need to interact with people who are self-righteous and will not admit their need of God's grace to enter heaven. Those are the people you need to rub shoulders with. You need to testify to those who see themselves as good people worthy of glory, who view themselves as a notch or two above the ordinary Joe Schmo of the street and are not favorably disposed to the gospel. Those are the ones we need to minister to. They do not see themselves in need of forgiveness because in their mind they have not done anything wrong, at least nothing bad enough to deserve hell. If they're wealthy, money is their God and they think they can buy themselves a home in heaven by contributing to a Christian project or by carrying out some benevolence to the poor and needy thus proving themselves to be as good a person as Jesus Christ himself. They don't see any distinction between themselves and him. You know it is the Pharisee and the sinner praying in the temple all over again. I would say still. We read the Pharisee stood and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like others. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. See, he's, ple he's, he's pleased with himself. He sees himself miles ahead of and morally more pure than the tax collector standing behind him. But, we read, the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, verse 11 through 14. Now that's not to say, it is not to say, that God never saves the affluent or the influential of society. But it is to say, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian assembly, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. The things that are not to nullify the things that are so that, and I was there the night when Dean Birch was hammering on the so that, here it is, so that no one may boast before him. God does this 
this and this, so that no one may boast. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through 29. Yes, rich, the powerful, the influential, they are always boasting of what they know or what they can do. They are generally arrogant towards God. But the weak, the lowly, the despised, the beaten down, they know their sin. They know it. This is why Jesus was in Samaria. There was a sinner woman there whom he intended to save. No Pharisees, no priests or scribes, no upstanding citizens of the community, no church-going, Bible-believing devotees of God. True, she was religious, but she was nonetheless lost. She could talk the party line about worship and prophets and scripture, but she knew none of these things in her heart. They were just so many God words and religious banter to try to snow the stranger whose words were stripping away her every pretense. And that brings us to the point in our outline of woman's great need. What great need? What does she need? Well, let me tell you what she didn't need. She didn't need a pep talk on the value of religion in her life. She didn't need a receptive ear to hear her tale of life's hard knocks. She didn't need a pat on the back and a helping hand towards self-reformation. What she needed, brethren, was repentance of her sin and faith. What she needed was for the Savior of sinners to open her eyes to her great sin. What she needed was an unconditional pardon from sin and the assurance of forgiveness and life eternal. Like that lost sheep, She needed to be found and rescued from herself and her wayward thinking and actions. So Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 10. If you knew. Ah. (laughs) She doesn't know. People who are lost are steeped in ignorance. They're looking for help in all the wrong places. And in all this, they believe that they can figure it out. If, the, if, if just given a little bit more time, I, I think I can figure this out. But they'll never figure it out. They'll never figure out their need of or their cure because of the bias of their hearts. Paul writes it this way. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. That's where people are today. They're hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot, cannot please God. Romans 8, 5 through 8. 
Insurmountable barriers, all of them. Or so we think. I mean, think about it. A dead mind to spiritual things, a hostile mind towards God. That seems like a recipe for disaster with no hope, no, no escape. True, if God's not in the picture. Why was this Samaritan woman at Jacob's well at high noon in the heat of the day? No one in arid countries like this fetched their water from wells at high noon when the temperature is 100 degrees and climbing. She is there in the heat of the day because she expected that no one else would be there in the heat of the day. She anticipated privacy. She wanted unanimity. She did not want to be seen. She did not desire any conversation. She was secretive and full of secrets. But the community knew about her sordid past. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. But she answered, I have no husband. That's truly said. She did truly say that. But also, it was meant to be a decoy of the truth. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. Verse 17. You're beginning to see why she's there at the well, alone in the heat of the day. She had gone through husbands like people go through paper towels. She had used them and tossed them away until she got to the point where it seemed useless and meaningless to pledge another I do at the altar. Why why, why go through the motions? Might as well just live with the guy and forget the marriage vows altogether. Her life was satiated with sexual indulgence and immorality. She knew it and the town folk knew it. She didn't want to have anything to do with them. And they didn't want to have anything to do with her. She was the town tramp. High noon seemed the best time to be at the well if one wanted to avoid interaction. Little did she know that transformation of such radical and thorough nature awaited her at Jacob's well in the promise of the Savior. Everyone who drinks this water, woman, speaking about the well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 13, verse 14. And her response was, Sir, give me this water. Give me this water. Okay. I give you the water. But there's the necessary road of repentance and faith. She hadn't commented on that quite yet. So she does a diversion. Jesus had hit a nerve. How is it that this perfect stranger knew about her past? Five husbands and now she's living with a guy. How did he know about her previous failed marriages and the fact 
that her present roommate was not her husband. This was unsettling to her, to say the least. This stranger at the well is reading her life like a book. Her deep, dark secrets aren't secret anymore. She's uncomfortable. She's being exposed like that. And by a Jew, of all people. Who is this guy? Where did he get all this personal information about her? He's just a traveler, a Jew. No one in Sychar knew him or had talked to him. What's he doing here anyway? As she thought about all this, she arrived at a reasonable explanation. Verse 19. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. She's spot on about that, isn't she? Prophets are given a sixth sense by God. It's called revelation. And as such, they can tell things of the past as well as things of the future which baffle the ordinary man. Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit teaches, searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit expressing Spiritual truths in spiritual words. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 through 13. He's talking about the apostles, of course. He said, well, I, my message is, is, is the words of God. And where did we get this knowledge of God? We have received it by the Spirit of God, by way of revelation. So this Samaritan woman has come up with a reasonable explanation for how Jesus knew so much about her. He, he must be a prophet. But she is uncomfortable with the prophet. He is getting, can I say it, too personal. He's revealing too much. And so she tries a diversion. Verse 20. Our fathers worship on this mountain, referring to Mount Gerizim, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Wow! Bold move on her part. She's willing to take on this prophet by engaging in the religious theme of worship. Would you do that? She did. Ah, but it is a superficial chit-chat about the place for worship not about the heart change that must occur for worship. For her it's about on what mountain the worship center is located, as if that were the essential issue. Brethren, people do this all the time. They will happily engage you on religious themes so long as they are considered by you to be knowledgeable partners in the discussion. They do not possess the Spirit of God, but they want to discuss spiritual things. 
They're at odds with God, but they want you to think that they are seekers and therefore worthy of voicing a credible opinion on God, religion, salvation, you name it. Sometimes this is no more than a fishing expedition. They want to hear your reaction. They want to know if you know what you are talking about. They want to discover if there are any loopholes in your arguments, any chinks in your armor. The diversion, however, did not work with Jesus. He did not play this woman's game. But he gave her a firm rebuttal. Oh yes, yes, answer honest questions that people voice about the gospel. You should do that. Be polite, be kind. Follow Peter's exhortation. In your heart, keep Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Uh, but do this with gentleness and respect. First Peter 3, verse 15. Yes, follow Peter's advice. But that said, remember the warnings that the Lord himself has given. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Oh, really? Yeah. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. Matthew 10, verse 16. Or again, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will turn and trample you under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Matthew 7, verse 6. So Jesus gives cautions with regard to this. Now, obviously, Jesus had insight into this woman's heart that you and I do not have when we are dealing with the inquisitive people of our day. But we can learn to be discerning. We can try to sense the real need behind the words. This woman needed no clarification about an approved geographical setting for worship. She didn't need to know that. But she did need to know God, and she did need to worship Him. Verse 21 and following, Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. What is He saying? You're ignorant and you're idolatrous. You need to change. You need to repent. This is where you are. You do not know what you worship. It's pieces of statues. And ignorant. You're showing your ignorance, lady. It's not about places. It's not about mountains. He goes on. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. Well, listen up. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Truth. 
You know what this is, brethren? This is a call to repentance for her. It's also a call to faith. He's saying something to this effect. You talk to me as though you knew something about worshiping God. But all you can discuss is geography. But worship is not about geography. It's not about Mount Gerizim nor Mount Moriah on which Jerusalem is built. No, worship is about the Holy Spirit cleaning up and controlling your life. Worship is about the truth readily available in the Jewish scriptures and in the gospel of living water that I have presented to you. That's where worship must begin. He's saying, dear woman, God is looking for honesty in you. You have sin issues that need to be addressed. You need to repent. You need to believe me when I say, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. The woman then acknowledged that maybe, just maybe, this stranger is more than a prophet? Look at verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, both words, Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek, both words mean the anointed one of God. I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes... He will explain everything to us. You see, she's moving away from, well, I think he must be a prophet. And now she's thinking, you know, your scriptures promise that the anointed one is coming. And even we Samaritans believe that when he comes, he will explain everything to us. In verse 26, Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Would you have liked to have been there and see the jaw drop on that dear woman? Was this disclosure by Jesus, I am he, was that enough to move this woman off her religious chit-chat to genuine repentance and faith? Well, she ran to town and told all the town folk her story. Not that they didn't have suspicions about her life, but she blurted it all out. Verse 39, and following Maron, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. You got to come out here and listen to this guy. Isn't this the Messiah? So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed two days. 
And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is what? The Savior of the world. John 4, 39 through 42. Wow. What about you this morning? Do you know and believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Have you acknowledged what Jesus told this woman? You worship what you do not know. You need to repent. You need to see in Jesus more than a prophet or a teacher of ethics. You do not need a lecture on worship centers. You do not need to know about church steeples and lighting candles and prayer books and giving alms to the poor and contributing to the church. You do not need to know anything that makes for religious exercises. But you need to know Jesus as Savior. You need to seek Him. Not the things people have conjectured about Him. You need to stop trying to divert the conversation from the words of Christ revealed in the Bible. Do you dare to listen to Him? Do you dare to trust Him? That's the question. God is seeking true worshipers. Are you ready to be found? Are you ready to repent? Are you ready to believe? Till you are, salvation will ever evade you and God's death sentence remains over you. The soul that sins, the soul that does, sins and doesn't repent, the soul that sins will die. You need to flee to Christ. You need to repent and believe the good news of the gospel. Then, as with this Samaritan woman, all your honest questions will be answered to your satisfaction and bonus among bonus to your salvation. This is where salvation comes. What a revival broke out in Samaria that day, all because the scripture says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. There was a lone woman there that needed to hear of repentance and faith. And it so transformed her life. She had to go tell people. And when she told people, they came out and they heard and they believed and it transformed their lives. And the city of Sychar was buzzing with the knowledge that Jesus Christ, we now know and believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Lord Jesus, help us here today to know that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Apart from him, there is no salvation. And we can argue about what mountain to worship on or what church to go to or what denomination to belong to or what Bible to read or what uh, candles we should light or prayer books we should pray or whatever and ever. It goes on and on. Men's inventions are without limit. But unless we come and bow before King Jesus and his word, Unless we hear his word that we're sinners and we need to repent and turn away from that. Unless we hear his word that we must trust in him to give us that living water that will well up within us as a living spring forever and ever unto eternal life. 
unless we're really ready to drink and satiate our thirst by drinking of him, we shall perish in all of our wonderings and in all of our questions. Our questions are going to be answered. The darkness will be lifted from our mind and understanding when we trust Christ. We won't do that on our own. So Lord Jesus, my prayer this morning, my prayer is that you will grant faith. You will grant repentance to stubborn, wayward sinners that like to divert, that like diversions, that don't like close dealings, heart issues. They don't want to deal with them. They just want to do, deal with the peripherals. Lord, bring your salvation to a sinner here today. In Jesus' name, amen. From Trinity Hymnal, our closing hymn.